Good morning, all of you. Again, my name is Kaylee Meza. I'm the pastor here at Christ Community Church of Plainfield. It's good to be with you all. Uh, it's very good to see the children in here with us. Uh, this brings me great joy. And, and I noticed this morning that when you walk into this building, there's a, there's a verse out there, and it's, it's from Acts, and it says, these promises are for you and for your children. And these promises, that includes this church, that includes being a part of this church. And so if you hear some small voices today, if you hear some small screams, uh, it's probably from my children. Um, but there's one. But I, I love that sound. That's the sound of God's people. And so we should, uh, we should cherish that sound. We should cherish them here with us now. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Luke 24. We'll be reading verses 13 through 35. This is God's word. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was still alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, or he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray together. 
Our gracious and most merciful Father, we give thanks to you that you have so graciously called us this morning into your presence. And we ask, Lord, now that as we open your scriptures, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In your son's name, Jesus Christ, amen. So has anyone ever told you something that you thought was just too good to be true? It was just a a little too difficult to believe, and I'm not talking necessarily about anything overly philosophical or overly theological. I'm just talking about those small things in life. I just graduated from seminary, as many of you know, just no more, I think, than a month ago. And I found that after I had graduated, that that feeling of of having completed this long chapter in my life, that that didn't quite hit me for for quite some time. I had finished all my classes, I had taken my final exam, I had even put the cap and gown on, and I was even handed my diploma, but I found that that feeling did not come to me, that seminary was over until I saw my final professor who dragged his feet a little bit post my grade in that final class. And yes, they handed me my my diploma before they knew what my last grade would be. So they had some faith in me, and I'm thankful for that. But that feeling didn't didn't come until I saw that. Before that, it was was hard for me uh, to to feel that rest that, that would come when you finish something that big. Or maybe there's a season in your life when maybe the job hunt, maybe the job hunt went on for just a little bit too long. The angst that comes with unemployment, right? the worry that comes when you are without work, it all becomes a bit too heavy for you. And at some point, hopelessness starts to set in. And you start to find that it it runs so deep that that when you do finally get that call, when that call does finally come and that offer of a job does finally make it to you, you have trouble believing it. You have the person on the other end of the phone, they're saying the job is yours, but you still feel nervous. It isn't until the paperwork is signed Or maybe it's not even until you finish your first day, but it doesn't quite feel real yet. You still have your doubts. Of course, there's the skepticism that we so often bring to our relationships. Maybe there's that parent, or that spouse, or that boyfriend, or that girlfriend. They say, I love you. I love you. I love you. They say it with their words. But either by what they do or by what they don't do, you'd almost prefer to not hear them at all. You'd almost prefer for them not to say anything at all because you can't quite believe it anymore. Or what about those who have had difficulty conceiving? Troubles with pregnancy of trying for a child. But no child ever comes. 
Or what about with miscarriage? You were actually able to conceive. But then a miscarriage. And then another. And then another. And you've come to realize that that at-home pregnancy test that you take, well, that doesn't quite mean as much to you anymore. You have trouble believing it. There's this numbness to you now. You see now, each time, those two lines on the stick, but it doesn't have that same sense of joy anymore. No, you need to see that child. You need to see that child turn and twist on the ultrasound. You need to hear that heartbeat. Only then, only then can you have hope. Without that, it's just another disappointment waiting to happen. But when you hear that sound, when you see that little child move and turn and twist on the monitor, and you hear that heartbeat, it conveys to you a longing. It conveys to you that your greatest hopes just might actually be realized. And your hopes are strengthened for the day. But as I'm sure that some of you know who have struggled with pregnancy, that hope only lasts for so long. That confidence only lasts for so long. And a few days later, in come the fears, in come the anxiety and the worry of losing that child again. And you are waiting. Your pregnancy is one of waiting, just waiting for that next appointment, waiting for that next ultrasound, waiting to hear that heartbeat one more time. See, faith is a, is a funny thing, I think, in this way. Faith needs to be nourished. It needs to be fed. As much as we wish that we could will ourselves to believe more, to trust more, to simply cast off all doubts, as much as we'd wish for that, that's not exactly how it works. Faith, faith is a flame. It needs something, something to give it life, something to strengthen it and to feed it and to nourish it. If we're honest, we are a people who need assurances. We are a people who need some sort of guarantee, some sort of assurance that what someone is telling us is actually so. And as we look back at our passage this morning, I think what we're going to find is that that is exactly what this passage is about. It is certainly about the resurrection but it's also about the eye of faith and how Jesus himself feeds and nourishes and cares for the faith of his people in order for them to see him. 
So let's take a look back at our story this morning. So our story begins on an Easter Sunday. It's the first day of the resurrection, and just before the passage that we read this morning, we see this, this small story of these women who have gone to the tomb where Jesus was laid, and Mary Magdalene is with them. But they go and they find the tomb empty, and then they have this strange encounter with these two angels who ask them, why do you seek the living among the dead? And after this, this little scene, these, these women, they run back to the apostles and they tell them all that had happened, that the Lord had risen. But the apostles meet this story with disbelief. And then shortly after this, Luke brings us to another scene that happened on that same day, what we just read. We're told that Cleopas and his companion, they're walking this path, they're making their way to this village of Emmaus, just outside of Jerusalem. And as they're walking, they're talking about all that had happened. And as we read, Jesus himself, the risen Lord, he draws near to them. He comes to these two disciples of his. But we're told in verse 15, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And in fact, when Jesus himself asks, what are these things that you were discussing as you walked together? The text tells us that they stood still looking sad. Cleopas, he's, he's bewildered by this, this question that the stranger is asking. And he says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And Jesus plays dumb and he says, what things? And Cleopas here, he tells him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And then he says this, he gives the reason for the sadness. Here's the disappointment. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We're let down, sir. And then Cleopas, he says something quite funny. He tells this stranger, he includes this story about how these women of their company, how they had gone to the, to the empty tomb, and they had even had this encounter with angels, supposedly, and they had been told that Jesus was, in fact, still alive. And, and even some of the apostles, they had gone to the tomb. And they saw that the tomb was empty. But then they throw in the caveat. But no one has actually seen Jesus. No one has actually seen him. These two disciples standing before the risen Lord, they tell him that they've heard the good news of the resurrection. They have heard the good news that Christ has risen, but they do not believe it. The story is still suspect. It's still conjecture. It's still speculation. They've heard some tales, but really no one knows what's going on yet. There's no reason to have hope yet. These two disciples had clearly been disappointed. 
as they stood before the risen Christ, these two were too sullen and too sad. They were too let down and too drowned in their own grief and in their own, own sorrow to believe the good reports about him. And they were too disappointed to even recognize the Christ that was standing right there before them. No, what these two needed was to have their eyes opened. And Cleopas and his companion, I think it's important for us, as much as we might read this story, and at this point we, we, we think exactly what Jesus thought, and we might look at them and say, you fools. I think it's very important for us to recognize that we are not so different from them at all. How often do you get burned by life? How often does life disappoint you and the world not go your way and in your grief and in your disappointment, how often are you unconvinced that God is right there with you? Brothers and sisters, I think you and I would be fools to read this story and to not see ourselves as Cleopas and his companion. We would be fools to not see ourselves as those who are so easily let down. We are let down because God didn't do exactly what we expected him to do. He didn't play our game. He didn't go along with our plan. And because you suffer, and because you grieve, which by the way, God does not have a problem with your grief, and God does not have a problem with your suffering. But it is when you let that grief and that suffering overwhelm you and it only brings forth skepticism and doubt. You and I do this all the time. We begin to doubt that Jesus is right there where he needs to be and that he sees you and that he loves you and that he is for you. Brothers and sisters, when we read this story, we ought to see the fragility of our own faith. We ought to see our own weakness in these two disciples and how prone we are to shut our eyes when life does not go our way. We ought to see in this story how what we really need is for someone to open our eyes for us. And that is exactly what Jesus does. Let's look at how Jesus responds to their unfaithfulness and their disbelief. So after hearing Cleopas's report, Jesus looks at them and he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus says to them, you should have known better. But let me remind you, my child. And he opens the scriptures for them. And he says, yes, I am the glorious king. I am the redeemer, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. But this was not to be done through power or through might or through victory but it was necessary that it be done through suffering and through weakness. It was necessary that Christ should suffer. Why? I think we see a perfect example right here. Because you and I are unfaithful. You and I are unfaithful. The eyes of our faith are so dim. They're so dim that you can't even recognize God when He's standing right there in front of you. But friends, even though we might be surprised by the weakness of these disciples, and even though you and I might be surprised by our own weakness, God is not surprised at all. He knows what His people need. He knows that his people need to be told over and over and over again. These scriptures, which have been passed down through the ages, this Word of God, this Bible that we come and hear every Sunday, this has been God's reminder to his people throughout the ages. And these are the things written about the Son of God who suffered on your behalf, who gave his life for you and died on the cross. And by the way, just as a quick caveat, please do not let anyone tell you that Jesus is not in the Old Testament. Please do not let anyone tell you that. Jesus here seems to do a very good job of preaching the gospel right here from the Old Testament. It says that he shows in all the scriptures, not just the New Testament, which hadn't been written, but in Moses and the prophets, all the things concerning himself. And that is because Jesus is the point of scripture. Jesus is the summary of scripture. He is the summary of its teaching. And this book, the Bible, has been given to the church for you and for your salvation, that you may be reminded again and again and again the things concerning the Son of God and His great faithfulness and His great love that He has for you. We have been given this book to stop you from doing what you are so prone to do, which is to shut your eyes in disbelief. But it's interesting here in the story because Jesus, he preaches the gospel to them. He shows them the things concerning himself, but they still don't recognize him. 
And we're told later in the story that they were obviously impressed by the sermon. It says later that their, their hearts burned within them as, as Jesus spoke. But they did not yet know who he was. Their faith needed something more. And so the story goes on. We're told that they, they drew near to the village. And Jesus, he acted as though he were going further. But the disciples, they implore him to come in and to stay with him for the, excuse me, for the day was just about over. And so they go inside, and here's the climax. In verse 30, it says, When he was at the table with them, he broke the bread and blessed it. Or excuse me, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. So here, we see Jesus do the same four actions that he did just two chapters earlier. If you turn to Luke 22... When Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, you see him do these same four things. He took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. And it is at this that Luke then says, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Now, some of us, we might be thinking that this was just some sort of act, that this action was just some sort of jolt for their memories. It was just something to, that, that caused them to remember what Jesus had done previously, but it's important for us to note that these two disciples were not counted among the twelve two chapters just before. There's no memory for them to remember in this action. They had never seen Jesus do this before. And this is instructive to us because we should know just what it is that we are partaking in as we will be partaking in the Lord's Supper this morning. I think it's common within the church today to think of this table just simply as a memory device. We think of it as just something that that, that is, is symbolic, that causes us to remember all of these, these Bible stories and to remember the death and the resurrection of Christ. But that's not exactly what Scripture says about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not just a jolt to your memory. It's not intended to be some sort of memory device for you. But Scripture tells us that the, Lord, excuse me, that the Lord's Supper is, in fact, a true communion with the Lord Jesus Christ and a true communion of the grace that He has for you. When you come to this table, though you may only see simple bread broken for you, Scripture tells us that these sacraments... It is through these things that we do, in fact, commune with our risen Savior. It is through these things that we do, in fact, here and now, not just 2,000 years ago, but here and now, do, in fact, have real communion with Him. It is Jesus Himself whom we fellowship with at this table in the bread and the cup. If we look at 1 Corinthians 10.16, Listen to how Paul describes the supper. He says, The cup 
of blessing that we bless, is it not a koinonia? Is it not a participation, a fellowship, a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a communion in the body of Christ? So friends, this table is not just a memory device. But this table is one of real and true fellowship with the risen Lord. This table, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is something at which you are able to come and participate in and have true fellowship in the grace of Christ. It is through this table that the Holy Spirit nourishes you and strengthens you and girds up your faith and opens your eyes again and again and again by feeding you with Christ Himself. And before you, like these two disciples, get caught up in the, in, in the rationalism of it all and, and the skepticism and, and try to understand what the church has long called a great mystery, it's important for you to see from this story that you need grace. You need this table. You need this table because your faith needs fellowship with Jesus Christ Himself. We've been talking about the church in this series and, and asking, what is the church? And it's important for us to understand that this is a pivotal part of church life. I know we often come here, and we come here first and foremost to, to hear the Scriptures and to hear the preached Word. We come here to have the Scriptures opened, but like these two disciples, you and I can hear these words. We can hear the Gospel preached. You and I can hear the promises of God for you, but like these disciples, you and I can still be slow of heart. You and I can still be slow to hear and slow to see. And so what does God do? He provides for you something more. He provides for you His table, a place where your faith can come and be nourished where you can not only hear the promises of God, but you can actually taste, see, and smell this grace that He has for you. The church is not only a place where you can hear the gospel, but you can taste, see, and smell it and know that God is for you and that He loves you. This table is a place where you can taste, see and smell the grace of God which is given for you and to know, to know that it is real and as true as this bread and as this cup. And it is Jesus himself who calls you and invites you this morning. I ask you now to see, hear, 
that God is for you. See here that God cares for the faith of his people. And see and hear that the Lord is good. Amen? All right, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we come to you as your weak and feeble children. Lord, you know our state, you know our stature, and yet you do not despise us. You do not cast us away, but you lavish us with a feast. And Lord, though we may wish to look away, Lord, you provide for us something that we may see you through the eye of faith and to know you and to know your love for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you provide for us greatly. In your son's name, amen.